Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com. Episode 33 of The Bowery Boys, a world's fair to remember. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to The Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. Good to see you here for another episode. We are taking a little trip back in time to 1964 to New York's illustrious, glorious, space-age vision of the future, the New York World's Fair of 1964-65. <laughs> that dash is important, too, because for six months, over two different years, mm -hmm. the world came to New York to celebrate, I guess, the world of tomorrow, or as the fair planners would put it, peace through understanding. That was the theme, though, as you go through the story, it wasn't quite as peaceful or as understandable. understandable. <laughs> <laughs> um, it really is a remarkable little thing that happened in New York, and it's left a little bit of itself still in Queens. Uh, that would be the Flushing Meadow Corona Park. There's some literally ruins from the World's Fair that are still standing. And there's nothing better or weirder than going back and seeing some ruins of what tomorrow was supposed to look like. <laughs> So we're going to tell you a little bit of why it was a fabulous place to be, maybe a little bit of a failure. And why it's still a fabulous place to visit. But first, let's go to the fair. Everyone is counting the days until the opening of the great New York World's Fair, an exposition symbolized by the unisphere that dominates the grounds. While we may be counting the days, the workmen are counting the hours, for many buildings are yet to be completed. However, fair officials are confident that everything will be in readiness when the gates finally open to an expected 70 million visitors. Most well, Tom, what would you think of that? That was incredible. <laughs> Where did you get that? That was a, an old newsreel, I guess... Like early 60s newsreel. I thought they were done with those by now, but that's an actual newsreel, just sort of hyping the fair. Well, everybody was getting excited they, for the 1960s. They were. Some of the information, and that's a little inaccurate, but you know, they didn't know beforehand. The New York World's Fair of 1964, it gets a little overshadowed by other World's Fairs, you know, the famous World's Fair. Right, Chicago, which is now even more famous. The New York World's Fair has looked back fondly, but maybe not in the same way. And it introduced so many things that Today, we take for granted, which we'll get to later when we take our little tour of the fair. But one thing it did introduce, and to sort of situate the listener as to where this location is, uh, this is in Queens, one of our first podcasts uh, actually settling down in Queens here at the Flushing Meadow Corona Park.
Park. That is in North Queens. It's sort of strafed by expressways over mm-hmm. there. You know, believe it or not, that's actually the third largest park in New York City at 1,255 acres total. And, and has it always been a park? No, it hasn't. In the 30s, well, it used to be a swamp. And it used to be a, not just a swamp, but just to make it a little bit more attractive, they used to call it the Corona Ash Dumps. This is like pre-1930s. And they would literally, it was a big dumping ground. Well, the ashes had to go someplace. Let's back up a little bit here. Sure. What is a World's Fair? Like, why question. on earth do they exist, actually? You know, and they, do they still exist? They do, actually. But they started in 1851 in London, in Hyde Park. They're basically the same concept as they are today. These gigantic expositions, basically a way for a country to sort of tout itself and the things mm. that it's accomplished. and invigorates the economy, usually, of a host country. It features a large group of structures, pavilions, all sorts of things, often futuristic or technological. Well, the very concept is that the country or the, the host country is bragging about what they've been innovating, uh, what their industry does. It's really kind of a show-off event. But then the rest of the world comes as well, and then right. they do the same things. These things were a major hit with the public because they could go, they could really see products that would make their lives easier. They could also take a sort of quick tour of different continents, go feel like they've been on some exotic vacation. So who does this? Who brings these together? It's governed by this group called the Bureau of International Expositions. They are headquarters in Paris. They and basically decide where the fair's going. And so to answer your question earlier, yes, fairs are still going on today. This year's fair is in a city named Zaragoza, Spain. I don't think Eurocheapo has hotels there, do they? But well, I think using Cheapo Search, you heard Cheapo's new meta search engine, you could find hotels there. Plugging our plugging our sponsor here. See? So Zaragoza Spain will have their first World's Fair this year. New York had their first World's Fair in 1939. And the World's Fair of 1939 was located in none other than Flushing Meadows Park. The same place and overseen by none other than our old pal, Robert Moses. <laughs> New- <laughs> not, not Peter Stuyvesant. <laughs> no, no, but he's, he's coming the story time. I'll get him in here soon. You know, this was sort of the beginning years of his influence. He cleared away Corona ash dumps. Right. Moses was the parks commissioner and his big vision was to ultimately create a giant, wonderful park for yes. Queens. Uh-huh. And he saw the 1939 World's Fair as one step closer, right? That he could use this land, convert it into temporary space as a World's Fair, and then uh-huh. afterwards have a beautiful city park. I mean, this was one of the biggest fairs at the time. 45 million people attended. However, believe it or not, it was a financial failure. The corporation that for- was formed to run it actually went bankrupt. Because of that, and sort of because the war was coming, and so you know New York's priorities were in different places, Flushing Meadow really failed to become that centerpiece of New York recreation that Moses really wanted it to well, be. There wasn't the surplus left over to really take it the extra mile and convert it into parkland that could be used. No, you couldn't take all those buildings down and build other stuff at this time. But New York decided 25 years later to try all this again. If we zoom forward to 1960, 60s era New York was certainly a different place uh, than 1939 New York. Society in general was different. It, it was more cynical. There were divisions in American society that had never actually been addressed before. We were past the utopian feeling of the 1950s. Reality was really setting in. And just the, I mean, how can you have the, I mean, the idea of a world's fair in this sort of new world where there's Cold War, Berlin walls, where there, you know, it's right. Diff- you had the Soviet Union and the U.S. breathing down each other's neck. So then why did they 
now that I've researched, I'm like, well, then why did they bring the world's well, fair back to New York? Like, so who did? What was the story? There was a man named like, Robert Koppel. And Robert Koppel was a lawyer. He had actually worked as a concessionaire in the 1939 World's Fair. So he's having dinner with his family, and he was amazed and shocked at how little his children actually knew about the outside world. And he thought to himself, hmm. It's time for another World's Fair. So he's, he really saw this as a sort of, not naive, but really hopeful, uh, altruistic way of like really like bringing people together again, but then in this, you know, in the 60s. So he did a little research and he actually found the president of the 1939 World's Fair who uh-huh. got him in touch with the state senators at the time, a certain Senator Kenneth Keating oh, and, and another senator. Jacob Javits. Jacob <laughs> Javits, who I didn't even realize was, I, didn't, I guess I didn't know who he was. <laughs> you know, he's, he, he's more he's, than a convention center. He's more than a convention center. It's true. Well, eventually they met with Mayor Wagner, who was looking for a way, actually, to start celebrating the 300th anniversary of the turnover of New York That's to the right. British. That's right. This is where Peter Stuyvesant, they won the 300th anniversary of the day that Peter Stuyvesant and the Dutch left New Amsterdam and became New York. So it was the 300th anniversary officially. He was into the idea of a, of a fair as well. He thought it made a lot of sense. And because, of course, a world Fair meant more than just you know people showing off their latest inventions. It also meant huge building contracts mm-hmm. for the city's unions and for the for the construction firms. It meant improvements to the infrastructure. All of these tourists, if they were f- forecasting, you know tens of millions of people coming to New York City, you can imagine what that would do to the city's restaurants, to Broadway, to the hotels. I mean, this was a major... In theory. In theory, this would have a major effect uh, on the city's economy. So the mayor was into it, and they filed a petition with the Bureau of International Exhibitions Uh in Paris, who you just mentioned. Yes. So Robert Koppel, he put it all together, right? He put it all together. In fact, he even went to our friend Robert Moses and said, you know, what about that space out there that you used before that's now this park. You know, you used it in 1939. Mm-hmm. It's still out there and the plumbing is in place and the infrastructure is in place and Robert Moses offered to rent it to him for $1 a year. He wanted to rent it for $1 a year, so but they're only going to use it for a year or two. Right, so. so I guess he made two bucks on it. Moses saw it as, again, one getting one step closer to his well, master he wanted, plan. He, he was still disgruntled that it hadn't gotten off the ground, but isn't like every Robert Moses project, then eventually Robert Moses it becomes a Robert Moses project, so he's not just sort of standing by the sidelines here. Well, no. I mean, I think once, once people got Robert Moses on board, I mean, he tended to drive his own automobile. The whole project just moved forward everybody loved it except for our friends in paris who refused oh of course well the bie they've been like it for a couple reasons first of all they wanted to run it for two years because they wanted to make money so why not have it for two years what where's where does it say you have to run it for just one year and then number two oh wouldn't it be cool if we just like instead of just giving all this land to people why don't we just rent it to people rent it to these companies rent it to these countries and these states and so i guess they didn't really like that either did they no in fact they had laws against that i mean affair could only be six months long and and governments had to be given space for free so they didn't really sanction it (laughs) and meanwhile they needed somebody strong and make this thing happen and that's moses who's the man robert moses so he takes it over so he's pretty but this is at the end of his career this is sort of his swan song right decades in service and now he was given this opportunity but he was perfect for the job because he knew the ins and outs of the government and he was probably the the most qualified person in the city. Well, he'd already done one. He'd already done a fair. 
Now, so but he didn't. He was still was not able to convince the BIE. So this was sort of a renegade world's fair, right? Yes. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the countries that would have usually participated decided not to show up. Like the the major ones, France wasn't even there. But and the big is Russia too. Right. For right. all this talk about showing showing up the Russians, <laughs> the Soviet Union didn't even come. The big I think the, the biggest country actually was Spain, Japan, even. But a lot of smaller countries would participate. There would the Vatican City. And Moses was so optimistic about what the turnout would be for the World's Fair. He forecasted that 70 million people would That's visit. Impressive. So his projection, yeah, 70 million over the two years. And of course, he forecasted that it would be hugely, hugely profitable. He saw $120 million in profits were certain to come in. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So, how would it unfurl? What would it look like? Well, first of all, the theme of the park, as we, you said earlier, but to enunciate it, Peace through understanding. On a big banner over the front door. That would be the official theme. There would be no real unifying design approach. The architecture of many of the buildings, this, Tom, this will be the first and only time I will ever get to use this architectural phrase. Oh, boy. Um, the many of the buildings would be done in the googie style of architecture. Googie? You've heard of how do you spell googie? You've heard of Beaux Arts. You've heard <laughs> of Art Deco. This is the googie style. Googie is wow. It basically is a sort of a depiction of the future. Think the Jetsons. It's a depiction of the future with like spaceships, long tall towers, space age fonts, just basically camping bachelor pad style now. I mean, dated itself almost immediately. So they built 175 different pavilions over 643 acres. Question though, when you say that the style was in Googie, whose style? Because wasn't it really up to each of the individual exhibitors to design it however they they liked? They all designed their own. This, you know, being the theme, this was a world fair and being that everyone had these brand new technologies and innovations and items and whatever, they wanted to show it off. So everything was sort of big and oddly spacey and and silly looking. <laughs> and concrete. 
Lots Sounds of concrete. Great. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because there was no central architect responsible for all these designs. And no. Moses himself was really hands off about the entire thing. They had standards. It could only be so tall. And or they had some certain so color schemes with each of the five different zones. But so really the exhibitor could build whatever they wanted as long as it, you know, fit boy, inside did they. a certain thing. <laughs> And the exhibitor had to pay for it, too. Yep, they paid for it, and then, yeah, and then they had to rent the the land in which they were on, so, sorry. Now, you mentioned the five areas of the fair. What what were these sort of districts of the fair? Well, if you were, you know, to walk in, the five areas that you would have as options, you could go to the, the industrial area, you can go to the international area, you can go to the federal and state area. Oh, that sounds like a of blast. Course, you have, of course, you can race down to the transportation area or you know after a long stroll you can go to lake amusement and sort of in the centerpiece of the fair because that you know they all have to have one thing that really like is the symbol right in this case it was the unisphere this gigantic globe 12 stories 940,000 pounds of stainless steel from US steel because everything is sponsored by a corporation in this in this particular <laughs> fair it was designed by a man named Gilmore Clark. It was made to make it was to be so solid, and it had these little lines around it to like emulate satellites that were circling the, the Earth to really like show U.S. space age might. Um, but also the world, and I suppose in making the world a smaller place because you could take it all in. But the critics didn't really well, like the, it. The, yeah, the critics thought it was like passe through understanding. <laughs> they just thought it was like anti-modern and old-fashioned. Well, no matter. It was printed on everything. You couldn't go to the fair without leaving with like 12 representations of the globe on your person. <laughs> and on the opening day, April 22nd, 1964, 92,646 people walked through the gates and gazed upon that unisphere and walked through the five districts. I heard it also rained on the first day sort it of did. like it was a rainy first day and president johnson was there giving a speech about peace through understanding of course while Eventually. there were hecklers and protesters right outside clamoring and disrupting oh, yes. things there were sit-ins there were protests i mean this was not the 1939 <laughs> world's fair this was the opening day and there were already like a mess of protesters around. Not a clean opening, I guess, as they would say. But no, it wasn't. Well, let me let's give a little. I'm gonna give you like a little tour, Tom. Please do. Please I'll do. Just I'll some just of the. Bored myself. I uh, no no. The pavilions are divided up. Like we said, we have five areas. I divide them up personally because of base of who they are sort of sponsored by, into like four groups: into countries, into states into corporations and into curiously enough religious groups i love how you have your own categories oh i have look i, I would be redrawing the map if i walk if you i would be in there. such a fight with robert well, really quickly so some of the countries who participated most significantly the star of the show yes. came from the vatican city pavilion they believe it or not the pope gave the blessing to transport one of the biggest sculptures, pieces of art in the world, Michelangelo's Pieta. Mm-hmm. Mary holding Yes, holding dead the Jesus. dead Jesus. They put it on a boat. They sailed it over in a secure waterproof metal container. And then, for some reason, when they displayed it at the Vatican City Pavilion, they put it under blue lights, and people went by on a platform and got to glimpse it for one minute. <laughs> and, behind bullet, and behind bulletproof glass. One of the pavilions that 
people talk about the most fondly, even the people who remember it, is the is Belgium. It's the Belgian village. Now that might seem a little odd because they did have a little village set up with uh, you know little cute little houses and music at but, great expense. Yeah, they had recreated this little town. But the reason that it, it had a lot of renown is they debuted a new edible there, a new dessert, which they called, and it was invented at the fair. Well, it was derived from a, a, a more traditional dish. They called it the Bell Gem Waffle. Oh, no, they didn't. The Bell Gem Waffle, and they and you ate it like a slice of pizza. Like you held it, and it had the sugar and the and the whipped cream on it, and you held, I mean, it sounds so good. And, I, and by the way, I mean, in general, the fair brought such an explosion of international cuisines to New York that an, a city that wasn't quite quite as inundated with international cuisine as it is today. So Right. There was an entire range of offerings. I mean, you had the cheap stands, you know, mm-hmm. where you could just get hot dogs and hamburgers, of course, uh, to the Chungking Inn, which was very popular, where yes. you could get a seven-course dinner for just 90 cents, to very high-end restaurants, sometimes in very high places mm-hmm. atop different towers. So on just some of the states that had their own pavilions, New York State had the biggest pavilion. They call it the Tent of Tomorrow, and it was designed by Philip Johnson, who designed last week's podcast star, the Museum of Modern Art. It was an outdoor pavilion with a sort of spacey observation decks. These are still standing there. These are literally in ruins. Uh, They're really incredible. I mean, that's so Jetson. They were used in the movie Men in Black. I'm sure some people may remember that. They were significantly. New York City had their own pavilion, and what they did is create a very small model of the entire city of New York, which they called the Panorama, and it had little tiny lights, little tiny airplanes flying in and out. Just a huge place, and that is still there, and that's still at the Queens Museum. Other states included Wisconsin, had the world's largest cheese, Later and, sold to Borden. It was? It really? was, yeah. You can't let the world's largest <laughs> cheddar get away, Greg. And in Illinois had this life-size Abraham Lincoln, which told his life story. And here's the amazing part about this, is Walt Disney designed the animatronics for this. And, and for actually like three other exhibits, including an exhibit called It's a Small World, he would then, at the end of the closing of the park, dismantle these and move them to his other parks. Right. I mean, it's a small world you can still visit. The It's a Small World, by the way, was at the Pepsi Cola Pavilion. And I, right, Pepsi Cola. I mean, Pepsi. What does Pepsi have to do with It's a Small World? <laughs> so all of these things, we have to reinforce the thought that these were corporations who were sponsoring these, getting their names out. In some ways, it was really like a gigantic trade show. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, we have General Motors there had probably the fair, the most popular exhibit, which was called Futurama. And you basically got in a little small car and you just <laughs> drove past these like grand dioramas of the future. Like uh, this little like googie. My favorite being this picture is just unbelievable. Like you would drive by and all of a sudden you're like underwater and they show this underwater hotel that we're all going to live in in the future. You know, right. in, the 19, yeah, sure. in the year 1980, you'll be living in an underground underwater hotel. They all had these sort of like silly kind of themes to it. The U.S. Royal Tire actually had a gigantic Ferris wheel in the shape of a tire. Photos, again, photos. Oh, you have to see absolutely. I'd love to see a so movie of funny. that, too, it's because so people were going up in this giant tire Ferris wheel that was supposed to really, you know, <laughs> rival the the, fer- the introduction of the Ferris wheel from the Chicago World's Exhibition. It just kind of looks like rubber. A big, like, it's a big... Yeah, you can't even look out of one side of it because you're looking into a tread. Uh, the, du- the DuPont Exhibition, by the way, Tom, had a, a musical show called The Wonderful World of Chemistry. <laughs> 
Johnson I'm Wax. <laughs> DuPont. <laughs> Johnson Wax actually showed a popular film called To Be Alive. And it was about being alive. <laughs> it's like pictures of different cultures. Nothing like wax alive. figures telling but, you about but being the reason alive. But uh, the reason I bring it up, it was so popular, it won the Academy Award. It was it actually won an Academy for Award. For what? For short, for short film. Okay. So anyway, I'm like, I, I, I could go on forever. Clairol, Formica, American Gas Association had a festival of gas. These corporations had their own pavilions, uh, but they were also introducing new products. Yeah. It wasn't just, you know, tire Ferris wheels. If you were a guest that year, and let's just pretend that we were, we would see for the first time a color TV. Mm-hmm. We would see a new Ford called a Mustang. Not everything caught on. Bell no. Telephones was was promoting its new picture phone. Oh, you know, yeah, which that didn't was catch on. A smash. And religious groups were there with their own product, <laughs> with their <laughs> gods and their spiritual uh, spiritual messages. So Billy Graham had a pavilion, and the Mormons, the Christian scientists, the R- Russian Orthodox. Okay, now I know we've been making it sound like just like an utter blast here, but in fact, this fair was actually criticized a little bit for actually not being as fun as some of the others because being Robert Moses, you know, he didn't have a midway section with a lot of rides and things. He just thought it was, uh, he wanted wholesome entertainment. He didn't want anything that was risque or bawdy, no gambling. He wanted to set it apart from the 39 Fair, which had some of those sort of like risque kind of things. Right. Um, there was like a saloon, and I think that Gypsy Ro- Rose Lee was doing, uh-huh, you know, a striptease. Right. In this fair, about the raciest thing you're going to see is a puppet show, a French puppet show called Les Poupées de Paris, made by Sid and Marty Croft, who, of course, famous for 70s television. And they had like a couple puppets were topless. Oh that was my. about the that was about the extent of of, of sex you're gonna see. And didn't they get shut down by Moses? I believe they did. Yeah, well, because that's you can't you know, get you can't get puppet breasts. In its place, though, people pass. could go see such such shows as Dick Button's Extravaganza, a nice <laughs> show. There was even a musical called uh, To Broadway with Love. But all, the public kind of rejected all these. They were just not, didn't pick up. But by the second year, when the park was starting to like not make as much money, Moses kind of c- caved in a little bit. There ended up being like, like nine, I can't believe this, nine discotheques, many, many bars throughout the whole place. And they, some go-go dancers were even there. So he just, you there know, there was an attempt, to, right, to shake the square attempt. image of the World's Fair. So then by the close of October 17th, 1965, you know, he wanted 70 million people to visit. That's right. And he got 51 million people to visit. Now that's, look, that's a really good number, but it's not the number that he wanted. And then it's also by the end of the fair, the press was kind of sick of Robert Moses. He's getting old. He's getting grouchy. He was extremely ambivalent. So the press was actually kind of negative towards the fair near the end. On top of it, the fair committee had actually accounted money rather suspiciously, right. kind of vastly overspent. I went, basically recorded the second year's advanced ticket sales as attendance tickets for the first year. Right. There so, was some creative accounting, not to mention that the fair corporation was a nonprofit group, oh, right? Uh-huh. And yet all of the fair officials were able to take these extravagant trips to Europe with their wives because, of course, they were all men. And oh, yeah, of course. They're all men. Yeah. And, and they were able to write off all manner of things. So- it made so much money. And so it's unbelievable to think that they almost went bankrupt again, just like the 39 fair. The city, in fact, had to bail it out. I just, I just find this irresponsible. <laughs> That's all I can say. Um, You're disappointed. 
I'm very disappointed. Now, the whole place could have been saved from its current existence with Walt Disney's help. Because there had been discussions that Walt Disney would open a theme park where the World's Fair was. Could you imagine if Epcot Center was in Queens? Well, hold on a second. I'm taking issue with something you just said. Saved from its current existence, are you are you saying that Epcot Center would be better than a public park? Well, you know, I guess that's I guess that is to be debated. But I mean, it could have been like a gigantic, thriving place, a big money maker. I mean, it's like you know, there's not millions of people going to Corona Park right now. I mean, well, it's got its charm. I'm the, not so I guess not. we should talk about what it is today. I mean, post fair, we if you take the train from Grand Central, which we did last weekend. Mm-hmm. You get off the train, you walk over a platform, and you arrive in a grand park with the signs from the 1939 S- park. Still there. Uh, fair that welcome yes. you in. So the New York City Pavilion, which is today the Queen's Museum with the yes. panorama and it's, inside. With the panorama still there, and they Fully have other, other art, art galleries there with all sorts of things going on. Right. Of course, right in front of that is the giant Unisphere, which has been fully intact since it was constructed and actually bolstered with more money from U.S. Steel. And then, well, the ruins of what? The New York State... Yeah, the uh, New York State Pavilion ruins are still there. There's still like even like a weird like elevator dangling by by a thread. There's a, The old helipad is still there. It's now this restaurant called Terrace in the Park. But the two kind of bright spots of the park that traced from this time was what was called the Singer Bowl, which was like a large arena that was built at that time. It is now, it was renovated in 1976 and is now the Billie Jean King Tennis Center uh, where they have the U.S. Open. Then, of course, the big thing, it's the, it's Shea Stadium. That's where everyone goes out to go uh, watch the Mets. That was also a Robert Moses project, but was not specifically part of the whole, of the fair. Though it opened, the Mets played their first game uh, in 1964. They had huge attendance that year because of the fair. It's like a spillover. So, so, so you actually, just, if you next time you head out to see the Mets, you might want to go just a little bit early, and instead of getting off to the left and walking over to Shea Stadium, walking to the right, take yeah. a little detour and walk down and say hi to the Unisphere. And there's a lot to see there. So, wow. Well, th- thanks for taking that <laughs> world whirlwind trip with us through the fairgrounds. Thank you very much for listening. I'd like to take a quick plug for the end of the innocence, the 1964-1965 New York World. Fair by Lawrence R. Samuel. And there's a couple of great websites uh, that have like wonderful pictures that I'll, I'll put links up to. I mean, I can't even, I won't even be able to do justice. These places, these websites really do a fantastic job. We don't do a bad job on our website ourselves. It's no, called great. Bowery Boys Podcast. Um, we update it four or five times a week with just nuggets that are associated with the, uh, the podcasts that we do. And you can also become our friend if you're on Facebook and taking friends. Just uh, type in Bowery Boys and you'll see us pop up. Thank you very much for listening this week. And we'll be back next week with another fabulous episode. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, 
and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.